All right, I'm going to read through this passage again in a moment. Numbers chapter 20. We, I had it read as our main passage for a couple of reasons, but I want to give you a little bit of background, sort of, where the Israelites are at right now up until this point, because it is pretty important. So they've, they've, already, they've obviously been saved out of Egypt, so God has redeemed them from slavery. They've passed through much of the desert. They've made their way to Sinai, Mount Sinai, and they've been taken off out of Sinai after Moses receives uh, the covenant law for the people. And they make their way to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And this is where they actually meet with the spies. So Israel was basically being told by God that they're going to go into the land. So before they got up close enough, they actually sent out spies to go up ahead of them, before them. And then as they moved closer, the spies met them sort of halfway in a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there, the spies bring back a bad account. They bring the people into fear by saying that there's people in the land that they ought to fear. They can't take it. God's not going to give it to them. And they're walking in rebellion here. And so God tells them that they're going to be in the desert for another 40 years because God swears that none of the Israelites of that generation are going to enter the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. And so the people eventually make their way more into the desert, uh, into what's called the wilderness of Zin. And it's somewhere in this area, although we don't know exactly the location, where the Israelites begin to grumble again with Moses and Aaron. And so here, let's look at this. I'm going to read this passage again, Numbers 22 through 13. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly into the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and, the assemble, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give, them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord 
and through them he showed himself holy. So you have a couple of events that unfold. The people are quarreling with God and God's servants, Moses and Aaron, and they want water, of course, and their unbelief comes shining through uh, because they're asking Moses, why is it that you brought us here all, all, and we don't have any supplies, we don't have any water, all the food and stuff that we had in Egypt, we don't have anymore. Why'd you bring us here? And they're implying God's not going to provide for us. We're going to die out here. So their unbelief is shining through. And God tells Moses what he's supposed to do to provide for the people. And ultimately, Moses disobeys. And by doing so, he fails to uphold Yahweh as holy before the people. But God is intent on making sure his name is holy. So God still gives the people water, and therefore he upholds his own name as holy apart from Moses. And what I want to do is I want to spend our time here addressing the necessity for us as God's people to uphold our God and King to the church around us and to the world as holy. We want to be concerned that God's name is made holy. We want to be concerned that God's name is vindicated among the nations. And brethren, not because He's in need of it, not because God needs it from us, but because He has determined that His kingdom is to come, His will is to be done, His name is to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God has determined. And we are the ones to not only pray for such things as Jesus told us to do, we no doubt pray for them, but brethren, we are the means by which God has determined to do that, to make His name holy, to see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ought to be concerned that Yahweh is upheld as holy. And I don't know about you folks, but I am sick and tired of seeing God's name drugged through the dirt. And it's all around us, especially here in this city. God's name is drugged through the dirt. He's treated with contempt by everyone around us in this world. And it ought to stir up in us some sense of a righteous anger because our Father's name is being dishonored. It's the same way as if someone spoke ill about your mom or your dad to your face. What would you think about them? You would think, why are you talking like that about, about my father, about my mother? And we ought to have a sense of righteous anger that people are dishonoring our Heavenly Father. They're dishonoring God. And, and the righteous anger is not meant to, it doesn't, it's not meant to stir up in us. Uh, the kind of thing that we see in the Taliban over in Afghanistan where we're going to go and start chopping off people's heads. But what it ought to do, if, if Yahweh's name is not upheld as holy out there, we need to first look in here. And we need to be concerned, our focus needs to be, that primarily all that we believe, all that we say, all that we do would be done so that Yahweh would be upheld as holy. And I want you to see that in this text, there is a direct connection between believing Yahweh, obeying Him, 
and then upholding him as holy. And we're going to see this. Now here's the deal with the actual passage. Uh, a lot of people have commented on this, and honestly, they're kind of split all over the place uh, as to what the issue is. How do we interpret it? I mean, they all recognize that it doesn't go well for Moses. Um, obviously, he's, he's kept out of the promised land because he doesn't uphold Yahweh as holy. But the question is, how? What's the issue? How, in fact, does he actually fail to uphold Yahweh as holy? Was it that he struck the rock rather than speaking to it as God had told him to? Was it that he struck it twice? Was it that he was fed up with the people and he considered them nothing but rebels? And that God would not intervene. That they were ripe for the judgment of God and that is all they were going to get. Many have said that about what is going on there in verse 10. Was it that Moses and Aaron were in some way trying to ascribe the miracle of God to themselves? Many have tried to emphasize when Moses says, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? That they're, they're sort of saying it's them that's going to do it. So there's all these different views on how is it that, that Moses and Aaron failed to uphold Yahweh as holy. And all of them are important. All of them uh, are worthy of consideration. We will look at them. But if we're going to answer how is it that they failed to uphold Yahweh as holy, there really only is one answer, and it's because God Himself gives the answer. As we read it, did anybody, did anybody pick it up? How is it that Moses and Aaron failed to uphold Yahweh as holy? Did anybody see it in the text? Verse 12, what does it say? That's right. God says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you should not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So there's, that's the direct connection. God says the reason why you did not uphold me as holy is because you didn't believe. That's the foundation. That's the central problem where all other issues are stemming from. And, and I don't think... I don't think people are wrong to point out those issues in the text. They're there. But they're only there as a byproduct of Moses' disbelief. That's the central issue. And everything else comes out from that. It is because Moses did not believe that he struck the rock rather than speak to it. It is because he didn't believe that he considered the Israelites too rebellious and beyond God's working hand. It is because he did not believe that he wonders whether or not it is even possible for God to bring water from the rock and provide for the people. The reason I say that is because you have translators that are, that are trying to get at the meaning of the sentence when Moses says here, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And they're, they're understanding that as a question from Moses actually saying, is it possible 
for us to get water out of this rock for you. And I'll, I'll deal with that uh, issue in just a moment here. But, but you see the idea. The unbelief is the central root cause, and the other things are just outflows of his unbelief. It's all driven by unbelief. And the thing is, Moses had a role to play for the people. I mean, God instituted him. He's supposed to lead the Israelites out. He, was, he had a role to play. He was supposed to lead out in this. And he's affected deeply by disbelief in this situation. And by doing so, he does not uphold Yahweh as holy to the congregation. And you have to think about this. This is why this is a big deal for the Lord. How easy would it have been for Moses' thought pattern and his actions to be transferred to the people? Right? If Moses doesn't believe God, why should we believe God? If Moses doesn't have to obey God, why do we got to obey God? If Moses can question God's character, why can't we question God's character? God's name is at stake in this situation. God's character is at stake. God's reputation is at stake. And God will not allow Moses to rob him of his honor. And so God brings forth water from this rock, even though Moses doesn't believe and disobeys so that by his own self his name is upheld as holy apart from Moses and listen <laughs> Paul Nick read this passage in in Corinthians Paul brings these texts out and he says these things are examples for us 1 Corinthians 10 Nick read it, like I said, but he says these things happened as an example. They're written down for our instruction. And the thing is, in this passage, we need to come to this for some instruction. And listen, we, we do. We look to Moses in many ways as an example of faith. And we ought to. I mean, he's there in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about all these people of faith and how they, what they did and how they walked in obedience to God. But Moses himself, if you were to ask him about it, would tell you that in this moment, he made a grievous error. And it, it cost him greatly. I mean, it cost him entrance into the land that he was leading the people to. I mean, God appointed him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the land, and he doesn't even get to go in. I mean, this is a grievous error on Moses' part. And we want to learn from Moses' example that if we would fail to believe God, we would fail to uphold God as holy in the church, in the congregation, and to the world around us. And to do so, I think to rightly get, when Paul says these are examples for us, written down for us, if we're to, if we're to grasp it, I think we need an in-depth look here at Moses' stumbling in this situation. So, let's begin to break this down. Um, like I said, Moses' unbelief is the cause for what led him to disobedience. There's steps here. The disobedience is a natural outflow of disbelief in God. And the progression is the same for Moses as it will be for us. There's no, dis there's no difference here. If we waver in unbelief, we will leave ourselves open 
to disobey God and thereby fail to uphold Yahweh as holy. So I want to consider ways that Moses was walking in unbelief. Here's the first one. Uh, Moses had every reason to believe God in his provision for the people. And the reason I say that is because everything that had happened beforehand are reasons why Moses ought to have faith. Let me just recount for you, or recap rather, the history that Moses had experienced with the people of Israel. All right? God redeems them out of slavery. He saves them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And not only does he do that, when they leave, they take the Egyptians' possessions with them out of Egypt. And he does all this through these miraculous, I mean miracles, mighty works that are done in Egypt by the hand of Moses. These plagues come by the decree of God and they just decimate the land. And even the firstborn of Egypt are slain and all the firstborn of Israel are kept safe. So all these mighty things are happening. And eventually the Israelites are led out. They make their way to the Red Sea. And here is one of the most unbelievable events in all of the Bible. And I was talking about this with a couple of folks this week. Just because as I was reading this passage and I was going back into some of these events, I mean, it just struck me the absolute awe of the event at the Red Sea. I mean, the, Moses splits a sea open. I mean... Can you imagine just massive walls of water on either side and these people are walking through on dry... Go, you imagine this. Go down to Lake Mead and just imagine the whole thing going like this. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. If you've ever seen uh, Prince of Egypt... Who's seen Prince of Egypt? If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. I've now watched it twice with my kids over the last two days. They, they love it. But there's the scene where Moses, you know, he puts his staff in the water and the thing just, I mean, it just, the water just moves. And, and it is an unbelievable thing to imagine having been there and seen the water just move and these people go around or go across on, on dry ground. That is not an easy event to forget, folks. If you're an Israelite, that is not an easy event to forget. And so they continue on. But they're not even in the desert for three days, and the people begin to grumble because they don't have sweet water. And so Moses picks up a log. I mean, you guys, you got to think about some of these miraculous events. He picks up a log, he throws it in the water, and the water becomes sweet, and the Israelites can drink now from a log going into the water. Again, just miraculous events where God is providing for His people. And then the congregation begins to grumble again because they're hungry. And he literally tells them, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And so in the morning, the camp is full with bread, sort of like crusted on the surface of the ground there. And in the evening, the camp is filled with quail, all so that they can eat. In the, in the middle of a desert... God provides enough food and enough water for a nation of people in the middle of a desert. These are miraculous things happening. But they move on 
and they make their way to a place called Rephidim, and they grumble again because they don't have water. And so here, Moses hits a rock with his staff, and water comes out from a rock like a river. Water comes like a river from a rock in the middle of a desert. And then they get to Sinai, where they meet God in mighty power. God descends upon this mountain, covers it in smoke, trumpet blasts from the heavens are going off, and then God speaks from heaven to the whole congregation the Ten Commandments. And the people are trembling, they're in fear, of course they are, because as the commandments are being spoken from the mountain, covered in smoke, it's intermingled with flashes of lightning and, and the, the smoke upon the mountain going up like a fireplace. I mean, the scene is just absolutely incredible. And the trumpet blasts are getting louder and louder, and the people are utterly terrified. And so Moses then receives the law over some time. Eventually, they're led out of Sinai. And they come to another area in the desert and they want more meat. They're not satisfied. They're grumbling again. They want more meat. And God tells them, I'm going to give you enough meat that it comes out of your nostrils. And that you loathe it. That you hate it. And it's interesting. When we read these passages, I think a lot of times we don't get the magnitude because we don't understand measurements that they use and language that they use. I mean, what's a hen? Nobody knows what a hen is. You know, what, what's a, what's a uh, you know, all the, the distances and all these things. Nobody knows what those things are. So we read it and we're like, oh, cool. They gather 10 omers. Next. But here's, here's the reality of what happened. Okay. When God says, I'm going to give you enough quail that you're going to loathe it. He tells them, he, he brings this in this wind from the ocean that sweeps off enough quail. Here's the calculation. Two feet high for 20 miles in every direction. Even still, probably most of you don't even know how big that is. Do you know how far it is from, the, from Red Rock at the all the way west side of Charleston? to Sunset Mountain is? Who knows how far that is? That's 20 miles. This is, this is an area that God covers with quail two feet high, bigger than Las Vegas. Bigger than our entire city, he covers out with quail two feet high. And you know what? It says that the people went out and they gathered, and the person that gathered the least they gather 10 omers. Again, we don't have a clue what an omer is, so we go, okay, cool, 10 omers, who cares? That's 500 pounds. The person that gathered the least gathered 500 pounds. So this is, a, I mean, this is something, again, this is not an easily forgettable situation. If you could imagine uh, pigeons covering Las Vegas two feet high because God says, you people aren't grateful, and he just fills the whole city with that, I mean, we would not forget that. And so these miraculous things are happening. God strikes down a rebellion that breaks out uh, by an individual named Korah. And he literally 
opens the ground, and these people are swallowed up in the ground. All, them, all their stuff, all their household, everything. They just disappear into the earth. They're just gone. And all of this leads up to Numbers 20, where the people are there. They're grumbling for want of water. And, oh, can someone toss me the water back there? <laughs> it's on the shelf. I just went to grab it, and I don't have it. Um, so all this, all this leads us up, right? And we're here in Numbers 20. And Moses had been there, had been in the trenches, seeing everything miraculous that had already taken place. He had seen God act miraculously, and then in Numbers 20, we find him, God says, he's not believing. Why is he not believing? And, and the psalmist deals with this in Psalm 95. I want you to see this. Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. It says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. See, that's, here we go. We're starting to reference the point here. Don't harden your hearts as the people did at Meribah, uh, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test... And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So you get this idea, right? They're, they're trying to test God and saying, God, prove yourself. Even though they had already seen all of the miraculous things that God had already done to provide for them. And they're not trusting God. And so this is Moses' first place of unbelief. It is unbelief in the provision of God. He doubted whether or not God would provide for the people. And I think it comes out in verse 10. If you go back there, it comes out in verse 10 when Moses tells them, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And I think the, I think the translators are, are being proper when they say, this is a question. This, it doesn't seem as though Moses is seeking to exalt himself by emphasizing we. We are going to bring the water out of the rock. It seems more plausible that he's actually asking a question in disbelief. Because remember, that's the issue at hand. The issue is unbelief, not presumption. And so Moses is wondering, is it even possible to bring water out for you people? Will God even do it? Will God even, even provide for them? And Moses, he had seen God work mighty miracles in the past to provide for the people. And the question is, why would it be any different now? Why would it be different now than it had always been in the past? Had God ever left them without food and water? There, there were times, no doubt, where God tested them 
He says that as much, Psalm 81, verse 7. He says, in distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. So God is, God is testing them. But the question is, did God intend to leave them without food and water? No. God intended to provide for them if they would have faith in Him. God is never intending to leave them without provision. And here's the thing. Moses' unbelief in the provision of God is, is sadly not abnormal in the life of God's people. Jesus has to deal with it on the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but I'm just going to read this briefly. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus brings this same point out because it's the same thing. The people, God's people, are doubting whether or not God is going to provide. He says, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So... I mean, at its foundation, it is not believing God to be a good father like he says he is. We wonder whether God is intent on giving us a stone when we ask for bread, or whether he's going to give us a, a serpent if we ask for a fish, right? Jesus deals with this in Matthew chapter 7, just a, a little bit after, and he's, he's trying to tell the people, if you are evil and you give your children things, you provide for your children as an evil father, why would you impose upon your heavenly father some lesser degree of goodness? And it's foolishness. Brethren, you know what the Bible says about a Christian who does not provide for his own household? What is he? He's worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. And brethren, God is no such infidel. God will provide for his household. He will provide for his children. And to deny him such dignity as that, to say, I provide for my children, but my father will not provide for his children. Brethren, it's not upholding Yahweh as holy. It's to, it's to not give him what is rightly due to him. It is unbelief in the provision of God. And it is what caused Moses to not enter into the Holy Land. And it will cause us such grief too, brethren, if we do such things. And here's the second thing. The second way Moses acts in unbelief. He acts in unbelief in regards to the mercy and the grace of God. And that comes out also, I think, in verse 10, if you're, if you're there at Numbers 20. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. 
And he essentially asked whether or not God would give them water. And listen, the Israelites, they had no shortage of unbelief and rebellion in the desert. There was a lot of it. It was over and over again. And the thing is, it seems as though at this point, Moses had had enough. And he becomes uncertain whether or not God would provide for the people and whether he would even show mercy towards the people. And this becomes a bit clearer in, uh, in the Psalms. So Psalm 106, this, this comes out a bit clearer. You don't so much get it in Numbers, this idea that Moses is questioning the, the mercy and grace of God, but you get it in uh, Psalm 106 as it's being recounted by the Israelites later on. Psalm 106, verse 32, it says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah. So this is the, the Israelites are angering God. They angered God at the waters of Meribah. And it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So you see the, how they're interpreting what happened later on as, they, as they're writing the Psalms. They're seeing that what took place is that these people anger God, and it made Moses bitter, and he spoke rashly towards the people. He spoke to them in a way that uh, he ought not to have spoken to them. And, and I just want to make this note briefly because I think it's important in regards to interpretation. Some, some translators, some Bibles will translate this a bit different. So in some Bibles, in verse 33, it might say that they made God's spirit bitter or that they rebelled against God's spirit or they just they keep the translation the same and they say, for they made His spirit bitter, but they capitalized the His. And therefore making the same point. It's supposed to be God's spirit is the issue here. But here's the thing. The, the language, the original language is using the pronoun both times. There's no, uh, the, it's, it's not, there's no name. It's just a pronoun. It's his and he. And, but the point is this. The pronoun, the reference is the same. So the his in the first phrase, they made his spirit bitter. And the he in the following phrase, and he spoke rashly, is a reference to the same person. And we know that it, God is not the one that, that speaks in such a way that is rashly or unadvisedly towards the people. That's Moses who's doing that. And so really it's, it's, it's better to understand that what is happening is that God is angered at these waters of Meribah, and it culminated in things going poorly for Moses because he became embittered towards Israel and he spoke to them rashly in unbelief. That's what seems to be happening here. And it's, it's really an interesting failure on Moses' part because it did not go like this so many times beforehand in the history of Israel. I mean, brethren, Moses was the mighty intercessor for Israel over and over and over and over again. 
He was the guy that often was displaying faith in God's promises, even when God himself was saying, I'm wiping these people out. And Moses is holding on to God's promises. It's, it happens all over the place. You have it in Exodus 32, right? The people make the golden calf, and God says to them, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And Moses intervenes and he calls, uh, he intervenes for the people on their behalf and he calls upon God's character and God's promises. And he says to him, Lord, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains. You see, God, Moses is concerned for God's name. He's concerned for God's reputation. He's upholding, in other instances, Yahweh as holy. Yahweh's not like other gods. He doesn't lead his people out of slavery just to kill them in the wilderness. And then he calls upon God's promises. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, all this land that I have promised, I will give to you and your offspring. Again, he's trying to uphold Yahweh as holy, and he's saying to them and to the Lord, you're not a man that you should repent and relent from your promises. You're not a man that you should change your mind. You have sworn, and you will not turn back. And, and Moses, is say, Moses is saying, God, it is not your nature to forget your promises. You are intent, Lord, on showing mercy toward your people. And then he does it again in Exodus 33, just a little bit after, when he finds out that even though God will not judge them and kill them all, he says, I'm not going with you into that land. You go on up, you take it, but I'm not going with you because I don't want to consume you people, right? And here again, Moses intercedes and he tells the Lord, this is your people, Lord. It's not my people. This is your people. You brought them up out of Egypt. Moses will not allow anything but the mercy of God to prevail so as to uphold him as holy. He intercedes in Numbers 11 when God begins to consume some of the people with fire because of their complaints. He does it in Numbers 12 when Miriam and Aaron oppose them and he strikes Miriam with leprosy. He does it in Numbers 14 when the Israelites refuse to enter the land and God actually says to them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And Moses, again, calls upon God's character and the honor of Yahweh. And he says, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them, that he killed them in the wilderness. Brethren, Moses says, may it never be, God. May it never be that the nations would speak like that. Uphold your name as holy. And then he calls upon God's character to pardon the people. He says, 
The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And he says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So he's calling upon God's mercy and grace. And he says, Lord, you did it all the way from Egypt up until now. Why would you not do it now? And then what happens in Numbers 20? I mean, we see Moses, he's interceding for Israel over and over and over again. He says, Lord, you've forgiven them so many times. Forgive them now, right? Over and over again. But why doesn't he do it in Numbers 20? Why doesn't he intercede for the people? And we don't know why he didn't. We just know that he didn't. We just know that he didn't do it. And by not doing so, brethren, he walks in unbelief. He walks in unbelief in the mercy and the grace of God and thereby did not uphold Yahweh as holy in the midst of the congregation. And again, sadly folks, this is not abnormal. This is not abnormal for God's people even now. They often fail to uphold Yahweh as holy because they doubt the mercy and the grace of God. They doubt that it is possible for God to reach out and save certain people. And brethren, I know that you think this because we all deal with this. We all doubt that God will save someone that we know. That there is someone we know and we think they're too far from the grace of God. That's not upholding Yahweh as holy. That's not upholding His mercy as holy. We doubt whether it's possible that God would keep us in His saving grace. That we wouldn't fall away and lose our salvation. We doubt that God will continue to show us grace and mercy now that we've been brought into the family and, and yet we think that somehow our maintaining good relationship with God is by what we do. Brethren, we often think that if we fail God or we sin against Him that somehow we need to work do things to get back in God's good favor. We think if we sin against the Lord, that uh, and, and now there's this wall of separation, we think, oh, okay, I need, I need to be diligent reading my Bible. I need to be diligent doing this and this and this so that God will have favor upon me again. They forget God's promised mercy and they forget their unworthiness, that there is never anything that could bring us back into mercy with God. And folks, this is so contrary to everything in the Bible. I want to point out one passage to you, Romans chapter 5. This is one of my favorite passages. Because of the way Paul is intent on making this argument for us, Romans 5, starting in verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Alright, that's us. 
that's you, that's me. Christ died for the ungodly. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, over there, you were hated by God. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now watch, here's his argument. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And here he's going to flesh it out in verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The whole point, brethren, is that if we were reconciled when we were enemies, how much more is God for us now that we're no longer enemies? Now that we have been reconciled, Right? If God showed you mercy, if God showed you grace when you were over there, a criminal, a rebel, an adversary of God, if God showed you mercy over there, and now you're not over there anymore, now you're over here in God's family, how much more now is God's mercy towards you? That's Paul's point. Brethren, when we get confused and we think, yes, God saved me from my sin and brought me over here now, but now that I sin, I'm now further that way than I ever was in the beginning. This is not biblical. Brethren, God, for those who trust in Jesus, God is your father. He's your father. You know how a son interacts with a father when he does something wrong? He doesn't just run away. I mean, when my son does something uh, sinful and I have to discipline him, it's, it's, it's interesting. He never did this before. Uh, but maybe within the last year or so, I've noticed that after I discipline him, he immediately gives me a hug. It's, it's the most, and honestly, it's the most incredible thing. Uh, and every time it happens, I'm, I'm in awe because... I just, I just painfully disciplined him, and the first thing he wants to do is hug me. And I think it's because what he wants is affirmation from his father. I need to know that you still love me. I need to know that you still care for me. And brethren, God, as Christians, God is our father. He will give us the affirmation. You come in forgive. Don't go try to do things to say, God, I'm going to do this and do this and do this so that you will now accept me again. Just go to your father. You confess your sin. You confess your wickedness. And God will affirm you as a child. And folks, when we don't do this, when we fail to uphold God's mercy and grace, we fail to uphold Yahweh as holy. And here's the last thing I want to address. Go back there, Numbers 20 again. And when I say last thing, we probably still have about 18 minutes. <laughs> I don't want to say 20. I don't know how many. 
But here's, here's what I want to deal with at the, at, the, at the end here. Unbelief drove Moses to disobedience. And unbelief will drive us to disobedience. In, in the ultimate culmination of things, this is the ultimate way in which we, as God's people, will not uphold Yahweh as holy. Moses disobeyed. He struck the rock. He struck it twice. When God told him to speak to the rock. And remember what I said before, that if disobedience was going to be an acceptable thing in Moses' situation, it would have easily led the Israelites into even greater levels of disobedience. But God intends to show that no such thing is allowable, and Moses will not go unpunished. He punishes him for his disobedience, punishes him for failing to uphold Yahweh as holy by leading out in obedience to God's word, God's command. And church, we have to take this dead serious, dead serious. We are to be a holy people because God, who has called us out to himself, is a holy God. We are to display God to the world by our actions. Folks, what will the world think of your God if you do not uphold him as holy and you walk around in all manner of unrighteousness? What will the world think of your God? Think about how Moses says it. Lord, what will the Egyptians think if you strike us dead? Brethren, what will the world think if we don't walk in obedience to God? Folks, are you upholding Yahweh as holy? Are you upholding Him as holy by your speech? Are you upholding Him as holy in your workplace? Are you upholding Yahweh as holy by what you wear out in public? Are you upholding Him as holy by how you interact with the opposite sex? Are you upholding Him as holy by your honesty? Are you upholding Him holy by the way you spend your money? By how you raise your children? By how you spend your time? By your devotion to the things of the church? By what you feed your brain from social media and things on the internet? By the friendships you surround yourself with? By how much you give yourself to God's Word? By how much you give yourself to prayer? by how mature you are in Christ. I mean, folks, it could go on and on and on, but the question is this, are you living in such a way to uphold Yahweh as holy in all that you do, walking in obedience to God? Because if we walk in disobedience, we will not uphold Yahweh as holy to the world around us. And this is not a matter of you knowing everything. The Bible doesn't call you to know everything. You won't know everything. You are not responsible to know everything. But you are responsible to do all the things that you know. You are responsible for that. You're responsible to walk in the light that God has given you. Brethren, if God has taught you something in His Word, do it. Don't disobey it. Do it. Whatever you know, do. And here's the thing, folks. It is possible. It is possible.
to go through your day and get to the end of the day and not to have intentionally sinned against God. That is possible. I know sometimes we might think that ah, we're just so sinful. We just, that's just who we are. We're just stuck in that. But folks, you can actually live through a day and not have intentionally sinned against the Lord. That's possible. Now, we may not be able to do that for a lifetime, but we can do that for some time. I mean, we have got to believe that. That's what the new heart is. That's what God has changed you. You know, people quote over in Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Folks, that's, that's before you're a Christian. God's given you a new heart. You're not desperately wicked anymore. Paul says in Romans, you're now full of goodness. But you've got to be determined to seek God's help and to do those things. You've got to make a commitment. Psalm 101, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. I mean, brethren, we've got to make a commitment like that. That we will know nothing of evil. Consider this quote for a minute from the book. You guys, you ladies are reading it on prayer. He says in there, If we wish God to answer our prayers, we must study God's word diligently every day to find out what the will of God is and do that will every time we find it. I mean, listen. Maybe that causes people to go, whoa, that's a little too heavy, a little too extreme. But brethren, it's biblical. It's true. I mean, if, we, if we're determined to have God answer our prayers, we need to walk in righteousness. And if we want to see God answer, we need to know what God's will is and then do it every time. Every time. Every time we know God's will, we do God's will. Don't be openly disobedient to God. And like I said, People can fall into this trap, especially Reformed folks. They can fall into this idea that they're just so wicked and, and their sin is just inevitable. And they say, the heart is wicked. Or we just can't walk in obedience to God perfectly. And that just leads them to just be okay with disobedience. And you're not going to be perfect, brethren. John tells us as much. Whoever denies that he has sin is a liar. The truth is not in him. We know that to be true. But don't take that to believe that you can't walk as an obedient son or daughter. Don't believe that lie. That's not true. You can walk in obedience to God. And you ought to walk in obedience to God. Do not sin, as Paul says, that grace may abound. Brethren, put disobedience to death. And, and maybe do it with some violence. <laughs> do it with some force. I mean, we, we got to fight sin. It's a war. Paul says it's a war. These things are waging war against us. It's not easy. It's a hard battle. But, but God has given us the tools to do it, has He not? I mean, we have the armor laid out for us in Ephesians. You take up that shield, you put out the darts of the evil one. You take up the sword, and you, you know, cut things down with the Word of God. That's what we do. We win those battles. We defeat the enemy. God has called us to obedience. And brethren, by God's Spirit, you will walk in obedience. 
The Spirit is producing fruit in His people. He is doing You don't do that. That's not what you do. The Spirit does that in us. We need to be determined for God's sake to uphold Yahweh as holy. Brethren, uphold Him as holy by believing Him. Have confidence in Him. Have confidence in your God. Believe and confess everything that He says. Don't be ashamed of it. Everything that's in this book, you believe it, you confess it. Don't be ashamed of this word. Trust in Him. Even when the world tells you that it's foolish to do so, you trust in Him. You rely upon Him for your needs. And even if the world thinks that you are a fool for relying upon a God you cannot see, for all that you need, you rely upon Him for your needs. And you confess that you rely upon Him for your needs because that upholds Yahweh as holy. The world looks at you and says, well, they think their God's going to provide for Him. And then you know what? When He does, God is upheld as holy. Be in full submission to God and no one else. Folks, we just had a couple days ago, the president decided he was going to act as himself as some kind of divine king and place rules over all these private businesses that are not his. They're not his, brethren. And he has no right to do such things. He is not your God. Yahweh is your God. And you uphold Yahweh as holy. And listen, we are to submit to our governing authorities. We are to submit to them and walk in obedience to them. But when they try to take something that God has not rightly given them, then brethren, we don't obey that. We have no, we have no obligation to do so. They are, not, they are taking something that God has not given them. Brethren, you uphold Yahweh as holy. You worship God. Be obedient to Him. Show the world that you are a son or daughter of the great king. Folks, you show the world. I, I was just recently, uh, something came across my screen of a movie I watched a long time ago. It's a war movie. And in the movie, there's this new guy that comes in and uh, one of the older guys who's been in the war a while, he tells the young man, wait till you see it. And the guy says, see what? And he says, what a man can do to another man. And he's trying to tell him you have no idea how real this is until you see what one man can do to another one. And I was thinking about that as I, as I was writing this out. I mean, brethren, you show the world what the Spirit of God can do to a sinner. You show the world what the Spirit of God can do to a man or woman. The transformation that God can make in an individual. You show them how you were and now what God has made you. Brethren, don't let the world say, what makes their religion so great and special and their God so great and special if they can live like that? Brethren, don't let the world say such things. We need to uphold Yahweh as holy. We need to believe Him. We need to be obedient to Him. Exalt Him, praise Him, glorify Him. Brethren, learn from Moses. Don't fail to uphold Yahweh as holy. Let's pray.